It's not unusual to find plenty of wine caves and wine cellars in wine country. What is unusual is discovering a sophisticated broadcast facility inside these well-protected and often top-secret chambers. But maybe it really isn't that surprising that America's number one wine broadcast originates from the soul of wine country. And it is our great privilege to do all we can to inspire you. If you drink wine simply because, well, it's a drink, we've got our work cut out. For literally thousands of years, wine has fueled celebrations, ended conflicts, and provided the ultimate connection between one human being and another. It makes food taste better, lifts spirits, sparks our imagination, and beckons us to slow down and love life. If that all sounds good to you, you're in the right place. So sit back, clear your head, put any worries you have on hold, and join us as we go in search of this week's Grape Encounter. But be warned, we speak a much different language than what you typically experience in most wine-centric environments. But you didn't come here because you're ordinary, did you? Good, because your host, David Wilson, is here to take you far, far away from the beaten path. Here's David. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And we've had some pretty weird shows the past few months. Uh, Of course, they're weird shows. These are weird times. But I'm thinking today that we just got to dive back into wine in a very astute sort of way and kind of do a little learning today. And when it comes to education and wine, I can think of no better person to bring onto the show than the lovely Wes Hagen. And I am looking at you, Wes, and you are out in the vineyard. That is very cool. What's going on, bud? Well, I am alive. I'm well. I'm COVID-free. I'm ready for the uh, the politics and everything else. I think tonight we should also talk a little bit about escapism and just to say, what would we do in COVID? What would we do in this crazy political situation if we didn't have wine to calm us down and help us get to sleep until at least until three in the morning? Now, you know what? I, I understand what you're saying, but the truth is I do drink more wine than I normally do with this whole crisis going on, you know what? It hits me in a kind of a bad way. I can't sleep when I drink too much. So I just have to pull it back. Do you not have that problem? I do have that problem. And uh, I've found um, I've been trying to uh, uh, actually, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to go to sleep uh, without a drink or two. And then my wife and I talked about it because I have some health issues. I shouldn't be drinking too much. So I stopped, I stopped drinking at night uh, and I'm falling asleep just as easily. I'm maybe relying a little bit more on uh, a little bit of melatonin, which actually yeah. seems to help. And what I find is if I drink before I go to sleep, I, I, go, I go to sleep earlier. I might go to sleep easier, but I wake up at two or three in the morning, but then I just can't get back to sleep. So it's great to have a little wine before you go to sleep. You just got to make sure you don't have too much. I just want to remind people that wine is not medicine. And don't use it that way. You know, it's certainly it takes the edge off, but I know we're all going through some tough emotional stuff. I feel really sorry for myself because I don't have a partner. I don't have family at home. I don't have any kids. So I do feel sorry for myself. I'm absolutely pitiful, but I still don't overdo it with the wine. (laughs) Okay. That being said, Wes, you are always my favorite go-to person when I need education. And I wanted to get in 
to a topic that I think we really haven't discussed in, let's see, we're at episode 589, if you can believe it, right? And and we've never talked really much about the family tree of grapes and wines that we are really, really familiar with. And, um, you know, we dance around it a little bit, but there are some that I think people would benefit from knowing more about. And so I turn to you, my dear friend, as I look at you in a fake vineyard. (laughs) I, by the way, am sitting with uh, rustling palm trees in the background, but uh, the joys of technology. Let's start with your favorite grape, shall we? Sure. Cabernet Sauvignon. No, no, no. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, Your favorite grape, of course, is Pinot Noir. You are considered to be a genius in that regard. You were a co-author of the Santa Rita Hills AVA, which is very, very famous, but also because of the movie Sideways. Oh, Sideways did for Santa Barbara County Pinot Noir what the Soviet Union did for socialism. Took (laughs) us from Pinot feudalism to Pinot postmodernism without actually doing a a lot of the work. Um, But Pinot Noir is an amazing grape. And one thing that we can even back up a little bit before that is every grape you would recognize of all the grapes that make the great wines of the world from Albarino to Zinfandel can all be traced back to one specific uh, domestication event about 10,000 years ago between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea near the Zagros Mountains. And this is shown by the research of Dr. Patrick McGovern at the University of Pennsylvania, And his title of this hypothesis is the Noah hypothesis. And the idea is, if you look at the uh, sort of mythological basis for where grapes came from, if you want to take the two major Western mythologies, the Greco-Roman as well as the Judeo-Christian, the Roman Greco-Romans say that Dionysus brought grapes. And what does Dionysus mean? It means the god, Dio, of the Dionysus. Yeah. So they bring the so the grapes came from the, this region near Armenia uh, in the Bible uh, and Mount Ararat and Mount Ararat and where we think Mount Nisus would be would only be separated by a couple hundred kilometers. And it turns out when we look at the research that the domestication event that gave us the first wine grapes happened in this region. So isn't it interesting that both the Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian mythology focus and have a kernel of truth to where grapes came from, either Noah landing, planting a vineyard, and who did God save? One man on the planet, viticulturist, winemaker. So I like that. I like that about the story. And he was such a good viticulturist. He planted a vineyard when he landed uh, landed the ark and he got drunk that night. So that's, that, that's some skills right there. That is so re- that domestication <laughs> yeah, okay. gave us gave us every grape in the world. But I think you look at uh, how the Romans developed grape uh, grape varieties, how they first brought grapes over the Alps into Western Europe. And then you look really at a post-Roman world, maybe say from the most of the Middle Ages between the 10th and 15th or 16th century in the south of France, the Languedoc um, and, uh, and regions uh, around there as being the cauldron of where uh, the grapes that we recognize as the great French varieties, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Sauvignon Blanc, Chenin Blanc, all you know the grapes that we recognize as the ones in the world. We're all developed around the same area. What, what, what same period area. of time are we talking about that this cauldron is bubbling away at? Uh, probably somewhere between the end of the 13th century, probably up to about the 16th and 17th century. France and the south of France uh, really absolutely 
excelled at taking grapes and uh, either uh, by a natural cross or by uh, unnatural selection, painting the pollen of one grape onto the berry or the, the, the ovary of, of a female grape to, to produce a hybrid. And hybridizing grapes is how we get all of the wine. The wine started as one variety. So you know what's really amazing about what you're saying is there's so much science these days that goes into creating hybrids, but you go back to that period of time. I mean, science didn't really even exist. So how, how did they know? Because technology didn't exist and they had no, uh, no distractions. They were agriculturists. And as pure agriculturists, it was all about what I call the genius of human discernment. And they were thirsty. They knew if they could make this work, they could have wine every night of their life. But I'm going to have to take a break, Wes. I've got a really intriguing question I'm going to throw at you. So I suggest that you take a slug of your favorite beverage. It's tequila, actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, right? I'm having a mezcal moment, but uh, Uh, mostly coffee, mostly coffee until the evening. All right. Well, that's what I'm drinking, too. So we'll uh, take a little break here talking to Wes Hagen. He is one of the most amazing wine educators, but he's also the winemaker at Jay Wilkes. He is a brand ambassador for the parent company, the the Miller family, which is a bunch of different labels. And we'll talk about that when we come back. And I beg you, if you really want to increase your knowledge of wine and be entertained and learn in a very gentle but powerful way, just go Google West. There, he has so much content online. It's just absolutely amazing. And you'll want to catch his latest uh, video, which is uh, twerking with Cabernet Sauvignon and because he loves to bump any Cabernet out of the room. Okay, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Many wine enthusiasts describe wine as a kind of time machine that can transport you to the place and time it was created without leaving home. Whether you're sipping a Sangiovese from Italy or a German Riesling, tasting is traveling. That being said, Total Wine & More is like the world's biggest airport. With more than 8,000 wines from every corner of the world in their stores, you can be incredibly adventurous and savor every journey. Plus, you can do all of your shopping online at TotalWine.com and pick up your order at your local store or curbside for the ultimate in safe shopping. There's always more in store at Total Wine and More. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and, of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. Mm-hmm. 
Summer is here, invigorating our state of mind and sparking desires for things that complement our playful mood. Yep, our barbecues are already working overtime, cranking out slabs of baby backs that pair perfectly with light, crisp summer sippers. And if you need a little inspiration, check out the summer wine list that no one can resist. It's Total Wine & More's Top 12 Summer Wines, featuring a truly eclectic cross-section of wines, all under $20 and many under $10. Plus, Total Wine & More is offering summer wine bundles that save you up to $24 on a variety pack of wine. And now that we've all gotten into curbside buying, you can order online at TotalWine.com and pick up your order in the store or just outside for a contactless experience. The best lineup of super low-priced summer wines is just a click away at TotalWine.com. I feel like I should be wearing a pencil pocket protector because I'm talking to one of my favorite wine nerds, but it's kind of hard to call him a nerd because he's also a hippie. He's a renaissance man. He's an amazing winemaker. I met him long, long ago. It's been close to 13 years ago. He was one of the first interviews that I ever did on Grape Encounters. I was actually intimidated and a little afraid to meet him. I was steered to him by my friend Keith Sarlos, who had just, with his family, started Sarlos and Sons, and but everybody talked about Wes Hagen like a god, and it was I thought I was going to have to climb up uh, 10,000 feet up a mountain, and then uh, I would have to bow and, and sit there in a robe, and that's how the conversation would go. Turns out, Wes is a regular guy, but regular in a lot of very irregular ways. So I'll leave it at that. That's, that's an excellent description. Can I use that in my in my resume? Yes, you can. It would be a good tagline for um, a laxative too. Be a regular guy in a very irregular way. That's it. Okay, so we're back. But we were talking about the time when things started to explode in terms of the evolution of grapes and the fact that they didn't have the science that we have right now. So a lot of it was just all about observation and having the time to really watch things very closely and experiment a lot of trial and error. My question to you, Wes, is this. If we could bring one of those folks back and we're going to find somebody who looks pretty darn studious and I'm going to bring him or her back. It'll probably be a him. I'm sorry to say in those days it probably was. But would you immediately put this person on your team and why? Well, well, I think I think yes, because I think that uh, those type of people would have had uh, a certain intuition into the way that the grapes worked outside of the ideas of modern science. And I think of Xenophon. Uh, Xenophon was a soldier in the Macedonian army who is the currently the world record for the oldest writing on wine. Wow. And his Macedonian, he was he basically stayed at a, um, at a near Eastern village uh, about 700 uh, BCE. Oh, wow. And so there was so much wine there, he didn't know how they made it all. And really? so this was a primary source documentation to say that people in the ancient wine, in the ancient world were making wine, were making wine uh, on almost a commercial scale. 
And what I love, I'd love not only to have Xenophon on my team as a Macedonian, I don't speak Greek, but we could probably work around that. Uh, but to ask him just sort of what his a view of ancient wine is and his opinion of modern wine. And, um, to, you know, tomorrow night, uh, and it'll be up on YouTube, I'm doing an interview with Ian Tattersall and Rob DeSall from the American Museum of Natural History about this subject. What did ancient wine taste like? Would we have said, oh, no, that's not very good. And how do we take the ancient world and understand what it means in our glass today that we've never lived in a, in a culture or a time in human history where wine was so delicious? And oh, so- you, I absolutely believe it's true. But what an interesting idea that in those ancient times that they were making wine in sort of um, mass production sort of way, sort of uh, Kendall Jackstonian. I well, guess. I mean, there's there's evidence in Zagros Mountains of uh, wine production in excess of a hundred thousand liters. Get in out one of here! Get out. I in an underground I, clay bunker. I haven't been up there lately. Have you? Okay. Hey, oh, train of Caucasia, so, You know, Azerbaijan, Western Azerbaijan, Iran, uh, Turkey. Uh, Anatolian, you know, uh, areas as well as Armenia. These are areas that have such a profound and long-lived history of wine. Try to go to Armenia and find one square foot where grapevines can grow that they're not being grown. People's backyards. I, I, yeah, absolutely. And some of these places like uh, like Moldova is a place I'm really fascinated with because apparently everybody – there has uh, something equivalent to a wine cellar. Every family, it's just traditional. And they have this network of tunnels, wine caves underground that stretches more than uh, the equivalent of 400 miles. And these aren't little tight caves. You can drive cars down there. They have a a grid just like the city. It's just amazing. And, uh, you know, people, very famous people, political leaders like Vladimir Putin, they have their wine selection there. But if you're driving down there, be careful when you go by Putin's wine, because if you oversteer and knock some of those barrels down, you're in big trouble. That's yeah, it. Yeah, you might get poisoned uh, without getting too political. I want to ask you, though, a question. Let's. I want to stick with ancient times for just a moment because now you've got me intrigued and now you've got me totally off topic. But if there was one person, one person or one legend that maybe never really existed that you could meet and sit down and spend a day with, who would that be? You only get one. I'm going to probably say Emile Pénard who was uh, one of the great early French uh, enologists. Um, I was going to say Louis Pasteur, but he was probably more interested in beer than wine, although he did invent, uh, he did um, basically posit the theory of, uh, of germ theory yeah. and figured out how fermentation works. So I'd say either Pasteur or Emile Pinod. Pinod said one of the greatest things ever. He said, the fundamental problem with drinking wine is if I put one wine in front of you, the question is, do I love it? Uh, if I put two wines in front of you, the fundamental question changes to are you, are you which asking, wine do I prefer? Yeah, exactly. It, that is such an uh, amazing observation. It's not amazing. It's just it's so accurate. I can't begin to tell you. It's funny when you when you do a tasting with somebody or some buddies. Let's say you taste them on six or eight wines, right? They think that you want them to tell you which one they like the best, and even perhaps even rank those wines from worst to best. And folks, that's not at all what we want you to do. In my world, there is no such thing as best. 
It doesn't exist because I can love a wine one day and really not be drawn to it the next, and it depends on a lot of factors. What do you think? I'm a paid wine columnist. I I could be even called a critic. But you know what? I'll never really use the 100-point scale because to me, and this is my problem, I'm not a very good critic. I think Oscar Wilde called uh, critics one-legged men trying to teach the world to run. Um, (laughs) Whatever whatever piece of apple pie is in front of me, David, that is the greatest piece of apple pie. Right, of course. I love it. And so if I'm drinking, you know, in Moldova, uh, Moldova, I mean, obviously, I just talked to two master sommeliers last Friday that both said that some of the greatest values in wine in the world today are out there. And I haven't had those wines. No, they don't. They do not make it to America. They don't make it here. And it's so sad because their production is enormous. And a lot of those Eastern European countries are really huge wine producers, but the consumption is largely domestic or uh, consumed by neighbors. And that's just the way it is. But we're going to change all that as time goes on because I'm going to do everything in my power to get some of those wines here so that we can taste them because it's it, the fact that they're not here doesn't mean that they're not good wines. It probably means just the opposite, that they're not going to share them with anybody because they're that great. we got to take a break, so you got to hold that thought if you don't mind. And we'll be back with Wes Hagen from Jay Wilkes. As you know, he is, I, I don't even have the words to explain just how much I love this man and how brilliant I feel he is and how much he has enhanced my wine life. You can do the same for free by just checking him out. Google Wes. He loves it, but Google him gently because he's a little ticklish. All right, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. that there's a lot more going on in the world of Grape Encounters than what you hear each week on the radio show? If your answer is no, it means that you're not as plugged into our wild, wacky, and wonderful world of wine. But we can fix that right now. I really want to share a lot more with you than what we're able to do during the weekly show. Like wine recommendations, interesting ways you can play with your wine, information about upcoming wine happenings, and even recipes I've developed just for you. There are two things you can do to get plugged in. First, join the Grape Encounters Radio group page on Facebook. Make sure it's the group page. Or you can sign up for our mailing list at GrapeEncounters.com. In coming weeks, I'll be doing giveaways, offering free online parties exclusively for you, and a lot more. Please, don't miss out. Connect with me on Facebook or at GrapeEncounters.com. Words can be very confusing. When you're crazy, people say that you're nuts. But what if you're crazy about nuts? Well, that doesn't mean that you should be sent to the funny farm. It means that you should be sent to the farm of MM Organics, the producers of organic heirloom walnuts and walnut products that are so incomparably unique and delicious, other nuts will be reduced to wallflowers. Whoops, there we go with those crazy meanings of words again. After all, if being a wallflower means disappearing into the background, then why does being a walnut from MM Organics mean standing out from the rest? Confused? Well, you won't be when you discover the glorious deliciousness of walnut halves, baking pieces, fair trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and other scrumptious walnut products from MM Organics. Learn more and order yours at mmorganics.com, where you'll also find our utterly irresistible two-horse Portuguese dessert wine that everyone goes nuts for. Get crazy at mmorganics.com. 
We're back with more Grape Encounters. Hey, please do us an enormous favor and like us on Facebook. It's the very best way to learn about other opportunities that we may not share on the broadcast. Also, join our mailing list on GrapeEncounters.com. Listeners on our contact list receive some exclusive opportunities. Become an insider. Enough said. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. You know, the thing that I love most about having Wes Hagen on my show is it doesn't matter how tightly structured my outline of the show is, we will never follow that structure because uh, Wes is a little bit like my dog, Henry. You know, you think you're proud of it. There's no such thing as a straight line. You can't take Henry for a a straight line walk because he's going to go off to the left and sniff that bush. He's going to go and lift his leg on that rock. And he just he's just all over the place. And Wes, you are, too. And every sidebar is a treat, I must say. It's so, like my golf game, but there's no there's no sand traps. You know what? I I played golf as a kid because my father made us, and if we uh, hit a ball into the water, we would have to either roll our pants up and wow. go get it, or take our pants off and go get it. And so I was I was scarred by golf, and so uh, much later in life, I decided, well, I'll give it a try. So. I went out with some friends, and it was one of those golf courses where uh, there are houses on either side of the fairway, and those are not targets, it turns out. And I, my very first, really my first drive right through somebody's window, and I stopped right there. I said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. You got a home in one. A home in one. I love it. Okay, but we digress. Let's get back to the family trees of our favorite vines. And we started out with Pinot, and then we got into some really cool historic stuff. But one of the questions that people often ask is, why is it that people who drink Pinot love Chardonnay? Why is it that people who make great Pinot make Chardonnay? There's a bigger reason behind it all, is there not? So Pinot Noir certainly, um, depending, it's a mother-father. They're both hermaphroditic, so using gender-specific terminology is going to help us. But about half of the genetics of Chardonnay is Pinot Noir. It's one reason the Wentes used to call it Pinot Chardonnay. So uh, Chardonnay is a, um, a human-made cross uh, between Pinot Noir and a grape called Gouy Blanc. And Gouy Blanc does not really make very good wine. It's sort of a bastard, bastardized uh, sort of grape. And the greatest thing about Pinot Noir, even though it has been genetically sequenced, and we know the genome, 30,000 different pairs of genes, uh, within the genomic structure of Pinot Noir as a grape, we still don't know where it came from. It is still a mystery. And I yeah. think if one grape would say, you can know everything about me genetically and I will still hide little things about you. Pinot is that magic. Pinot is that whisper. Pinot is, I mean, uh, Aubert de Villain from the Domaine de la Romani Conti called it a rosebud in Citizen Kane. Does it exist? It is rosebud. a ghost. It is a vehicle for showcasing terroir. In fact, the Burgundians might even say Pinot Noir doesn't exist. It's just purely a vehicle for showing off the flavor of a place. Wow. But it has a diversity like few other grapes have. It's really, truly amazing how many different styles there are. You know that I'm not a fan of certain types of Pinot, and I make that very clear on the show. But I, I say that with a caveat, which is, you need to 
really discover the range of Pinot Noirs because if you don't like one, chances are somewhere on that spectrum, there's a Pinot that you will love. And there's no, there's no doubt that Pinot Noir is the most genetically uh, unstable grape. It goes through genetic mutation fast. Remember, it's not only humans messing with uh, grapes and crossing them. It's also the fact that grapes do not uh, breed true. So when a new shoot emerges from a vine, it's genetically distinct from the stuff it came out of. In fact, every shoot in a vineyard is genetically distinct from every other shoot in the vineyard. So the genetic accessions, the genetic mutations are happening at a staggeringly fast pace. And as you mentioned, Pinot Noir is the most diverse wine grape in the world. Look what it can produce. You can bleach it and make a white wine. You can make some of the greatest champagne in the world. You can make a rosé. You can make a light-bodied red, a medium-bodied red, or even a fairly fat red uh, from very ripe grapes from a coastal climate. And Pinot Noir is also, I like to say, the princess and the princess and the pea because you can lay her down anywhere. But if she's at all uncomfortable, she'll let you know because it can only grow really successfully in about 12 places in the world. Uh, yeah. As opposed to Cabernet, which you just grow in a closet. And and one of the side effects of the movie Sideways is that a lot of people got into growing Pinot Noir and making Pinot Noir that had no business doing so. Um, and Pinot Noir, and Pinot Noir that's also been manipulated with certain um, techniques, yeah. reverse osmosis, concentrators, uh, you know, Malbec extracts. All this stuff to make a Pinot that for the people that say they want to drink Pinot Noir, but honestly, they'd be rather drinking Cab. But they want everyone to see that they're drinking Pinot Noir. Isn't that isn't that an amazing thing? And that's the reason why I pick on Pinot so much is that there's this misguided impression out there that if you're a true wine lover, a true wine aficionado, then Pinot has to be something that often touches your palate, and I just don't agree. I sometimes call it the liver and onions of wine, and the reason I say that, not because it tastes like liver and onions, it's that people who love liver and onions, they would kill for liver and onions, but other people just don't like it at all. You're looking at me <laughs> you know, uh, you're baffled by no, that. No, no, no. I, I understand what you're saying. I think Pinot Noir before Sideways was the end game of the wine geek. You had to go through your, you know, your Cabernet phase, your Syrah phase, your Rhone right. phase, your Bordeaux phase, all these phases. And then in the very end, someone would turn you on to a Pinot Noir and your readiness to understand wine meets the elegance, complexity and beauty and femininity of a perfect Pinot Noir. It hits your palate. Your mind is blown. And then you become – you try to chase the dragon's tail and find another – that, that, that I think is true for a lot of people and uh, yes, get out and discover them. And we've talked about the different places where Pinot is made that I really enjoy. You know, I definitely – apart from the Santa Rita Hills where Wes is at, I really love the Santa Lucia Highlands in Monterey County. Uh, you can't go wrong with Pinots from the Russian River. Um, up in Sonoma County. And Wes, you might actually kick me for saying this, but pretty much any place in Oregon. Oregon is so committed to making great Pinot, it's just crazy. They make a lot of different wines there, but Pinot is their pride and joy, and you don't taste a lot of bad Pinot from Oregon. Is that fair to say? I am going to do something that an Oregonian would never do. Oregonians would never admit they love California because most of them are closeted ex-Californians trying to hide where they're from. That is true. Um, I was run off a logging road in Oregon and almost killed because I had a California license plate. But you know what? I love Oregon. I love their wines. I love their attitude. I love um, just about everything up there. It's just a beautiful place to visit. And 
now that they're getting a little bit warmer up there uh, during these harvests, they're getting uh, a little bit extra ripe. And back in the day when California was ripe, Oregon's are like, we don't want to be ripe. Now that they're getting ripe and getting the scores, they're pretty happy of what they're doing. And their wines are becoming more consistent and they're cleaning up their cellars and making good, sound wine. Yeah, the other thing that's happening up in Oregon, I've mentioned this a couple of times and it really bears mentioning again, is Oregonian winemakers who have been very focused on Pinot for many years now and gotten very good at it are now discovering what the rest of the world kind of knew, which is where great Pinot grows, great Chardonnay grows. And you don't see many Chardonnays from Oregon, but that's the new trend in Oregon right now. A lot of Chardonnay being planted. And I'll tell you something, I have never tasted better Chardonnays than what some of the great winemakers in Oregon are creating. Get yourself a Willamette Valley Chardonnay. You will not be disappointed. It will be like no other Chardonnay you've ever tasted. And I think, you know, maybe five years from now, people are going to be screaming at the top of their lungs about these wines that are just getting attention now. So we gotta sure. we gotta take a break, Wes, but when we come back, we're gonna talk about two other wines that have interesting family trees, and we'll have to do that fast. No sidetrack because we have a obligation to our listeners here on Grape Encounters Radio. As summer turns to fall, leaves and wardrobes aren't the only thing that change color. This is the time of year when wine preferences tend to darken up. Cold, crisp whites are already making way for fall favorites like Pinot Noir and luscious California Zin. Tropically tinted New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs won't migrate south just yet, and rosés will also remain resilient well into turkey time. But folks like me who've enjoyed lighter fare in the backyard all summer will venture out and take a cab almost everywhere we go. Now there's no doubt about this fall phenomenon. It's a time when wine enthusiasts get more adventurous and try things outside of their comfort zone. And if your comfort zone could use a little reimagination, let the experts at Total Wine & More show you just how much adventure there is to discover among their inventory of 8,000 or more wines in every store. You can still enjoy their legendary customer experience in-store or make an evening of exploring the world of wine from the comfort of your cozy couch. Load up your shopping cart, stop by the store, and Total Wine will rush your order to curbside. Once you immerse yourself into an online Total Wine discovery mission, you'll quickly fall in love with the incomparable wines you can access so easily and affordably. See what I mean at TotalWine.com. If you're a frequent Grape Encounters radio listener, you know that our show is all about inclusiveness. For far too long, wine consumers have felt left out, simply because a small minority of, well, let's call them out, wine snobs have dominated the conversation. For 12 years, it's been my mission to give you, the wine enthusiasts that just want to have fun, a front row seat to everything that's cool about wine. And while we have a very intimate thing going on here, I've been thinking that we can take things where no radio or TV program has gone before. And so beginning next week, I'm inviting you and your friends to get together with me for a private online party. This isn't a big streaming free-for-all event. It's you, me, and your guests. You decide what you want to talk about, we'll set a time, then it's party time. So email me using the contact form at GrapeEncounters.com. Tell me a little bit about how we can make this fun for you, and I'll respond to as many requests as I can. 
just drop me a note at GrapeEncounters.com. Even though I spend almost every waking hour trying to track down all things wine, Total Wine & More is impossible to keep up with. That's because they have a team of experts constantly searching every corner of the world for amazing wines priced so you can enjoy them on any occasion, like tomorrow. They're always busy forging relationships with the best producers so that they're able to provide exceptional wines that are exciting and new to you at incredible savings. And of course, your faves will be there too. New discoveries, must-have favorites, and more than 8,000 choices to explore online with your handy device while you soak up some shade. Visit Total Wine & More in person, or if you prefer a contactless experience, order online at TotalWine.com and pick up your order in the store or curbside. And for awesome summer wines, all under $20 and many under $10, be sure to check out their summer wines list at TotalWine.com. Hey, we're talking about wines with interesting family trees today, and uh, one of the most interesting people where wine is concerned is Wes Hagen. I'm delighted to have you on today. We're kind of going down a different road than we normally go down, but we only have a short bit of show left, so I've got to dive into two wines that have an interesting pedigree. The first one is interesting because it really belongs in a very beloved family of grapes, but you don't really hear it. It's almost like it's been dissed by the family, and that's Petite Syrah. Yeah, so Petite Syrah comes from a kind of a fringe red variety that used to be a workhorse in the Rhone that's really not planted very much anymore. It's called Derif, uh, which is a cross between Syrah and uh, a grape called uh, Palorson. It basically is a deep, dark red, and sometimes we call Petite Syrah, you know, a wine that came out of a vineyard that had all sorts of different things planted, and we use Petite Syrah as a catch-all. But real Petite Syrah comes from Derif, and as it's been planted in California for the last 150, 200 years, it's gone through some genetic mutations. So now California claims Petite Syrah as a genetic accession from Derif as one of the two heritage varietals that California sort of quote unquote owns, Zinfandel and Petite Syrah. So as a fourth generation Californian, Petite Syrah is an absolute gem and a treasure of California wine. So next to the United States, uh, the next biggest producer of Petite Syrah is Australia. And it, it can't be even more than like an eighth of the Petite Syrah. America just dominates. A little bit of it comes from Chile, Mexico, uh, let's see, South Africa and Brazil. But it's all about the United States. I listen sometimes to wine experts and they'll talk about Petite Syrah and they will say something that is so inaccurate, which is that Petite Syrah is not related to Syrah and it is. It very much is. And so that big, juicy – I don't like to use the word fruit bomb, but I'll use it just to kind of use it as a metaphor because it is. The fruit of the Petite Syrah grape is just astounding. It's huge. It has that beautiful kind of mix of juicy confectionery kind of berry character, but it also has a lot of that sort of um, sort of stony graphite minerality too. Yes. And it reminds me of what Galileo said that wine is sunlight held together by water. And, you know, it's California. What is the currency of California wine? Sunshine, baby. Uh, I'll tell you, Petit Syrah is one of those wines that I think is going to have its day in the sun. 
and it's going to be huge because we're learning how to make Petit Syrah as a single varietal wine as opposed to just using it to boost the complexion of other wines that are a little wimpy, and that's where it often goes. Get into Petit Syrah. It's a wine that really deserves your discovery. And Petit Syrah, so many times, I mean, you can get a good good bottle from Bogle, you know, for $7.99, and you can get a great bottle from Jay Wilkes for 50 bucks. So really? somewhere between 10 bucks and 50 bucks, you can try some of the greatest Petit Syrahs in the world. I have never tasted your Petit Syrah. Just can, came out. Just came can, out. It's can a, I have a bottle, please? Of course. I'll uh, write you up a sample order uh, out of my travel and Oh, expenses. no, I, I've got to taste it. I'm, I'm so excited. You made that wine. It's I, my only petite Syrah, so it's the, I the best petite Syrah I've ever made. I can't, maybe. I can't wait. Okay, we got to talk about what is the most popular, really, red wine in America for sure, and probably in a broader sense around the world. It's Cabernet Sauvignon. It's sort of the gold standard for a lot of people. It symbolizes quality, and if you drink Cabernet Sauvignon. You kind of feel like you've made it. There's a certain, I don't know, success is woven into the fabric of Cabernet Sauvignon. But that being said, it's really interesting because Cabernet Sauvignon has parents that you wouldn't expect. And I'm going to flip it over to you, Wes, and maybe you can enlighten us a bit. So Cabernet Sauvignon is the king. It's so popular in the United States because it represents everything that Americans want. More, more, and more. Yeah. Big fruit, big tannins, big acid, believe it or not. Cabernet Sauvignon for a wine that doesn't show a lot of acidity actually maintains acidity extraordinarily well through hot growing seasons. Cabernet can also be grown in many, many regions from a region two to a region four. So a cooler region all the way to a hotter region. But if you look at the heritage of Cabernet Sauvignon, somewhere probably around the 17th century, there was a cross between two grapes, as you mentioned, might seem a little odd. Um, the one grape, it's probably perfectly reasonable, Cabernet Franc, one of the oldest grapes on the planet as far as varietal varietal grapes in France, but also Sauvignon Blanc. So yeah. they, Sauvignon Blanc met Cabernet Sauvignon, and there was a cross-pollination. So 50% Cabernet Franc, 50% Sauvignon Blanc. And it really got pushed into the shadows by its son, Cabernet Sauvignon, because Cabernet Sauvignon did not like the fact that it was a bastard child that was born out of an illicit uh, union between two cousins, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. But, you know, we've come to accept it. But now it's time to dig into Cab Franc, I think. And now that you know where Cabernet Sauvignon comes from, you know, why drink the product when you can have the factory? That's what I say. It's just, it's such a beautiful grape and it really tends to be, you know, uh, big in the right bank of Bordeaux and some of the great Bordeaux wines are yeah. predominantly Cab Franc. And if you go to the Loire, especially Anjou and Bourguil, you can find wines for 20 bucks that are 100% Cab Franc. It will blow your mind. All right. Well, we've got to go, but I will uh, end with this one thought that if you buy a random Cabernet Sauvignon, you could be very disappointed. If you buy a random Cab Franc because there's much less of it and it's created by people who are dedicated to that grape, you've got a better chance of a better wine. Is that fair, Wes? I think you probably get more quality to price ratio out of Cabernet Sauvignon, especially how it's being made today. But Cabernet Franc will certainly uh, deliver for the price point. So that's going to do it for us today, Wes Hagen. Next time I talk to you, we'll be in a different reality because we have an election a couple of days from now. There's going to be a lot of wine consumed on Tuesday night. I, I can't I can't wait to see what, what happens. All right. That just spoke volumes. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. 
And we will see you back here in the first week of November. So glad you could join us today. And just thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us all of these many years. I really appreciate it. We'll see you again next week. This edition of Grape Encounters has been brought to you by Total Wine & More. When Total Wine & More challenged themselves to keep more than 8,000 wines on hand, they pioneered a consumer experience that 99.999% of the population would have thought was impossible. It was an undertaking that I still can't totally get my arms around today. But I've spent many hours of my personal time being that adult kid in a candy store, using my mouse to learn about their extremely affordable top 20 wines of the year, or learning eye-opening details about the iconic winemakers behind Total Wine's Legends of Wine collection. TotalWine.com is an online resource so rich with content, it's hard to imagine a more satisfying wine-related experience. Spend all the time you want at TotalWine.com or at your nearest store. Just make sure you're back here with me at the same time next week for another Grape Encounter. Thank you.